Good evening, and welcome to the Legal Eagle Review, an informative and thought-provoking weekly show covering legal issues affecting everyday people. We know that there are many things that you could be doing with your time, and we appreciate your decision to share this time with us. I'm Irving Joyner. I'm April Dawson. We're law professors at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and we're your co-hosts. The Legal Eagle Review is sponsored by the NCCU School of Law. We thank you for joining us this evening. May 17th last week marked the 68th anniversary of Brown v. Board of Education, the case in which the United States Supreme Court held that state-sponsored segregation in public schools was unconstitutional. With the Brown decision, the Supreme Court overruled Plessy v. Ferguson, the 1896 case in which the court held that state-mandated segregation of the races did not violate the 14th Amendment of the Constitution if the accommodations were equal. Brown was not one case, but included five cases consolidated under the caption of Brown v. Board of Education. These cases came out of Kansas, South Carolina, Delaware, Virginia, and the District of Columbia. On tonight's show, we're going to discuss the background of Brown, the NAACP strategy, the court's decision, the aftermath of the case, and the legacy of Brown. Joining us for this discussion are two of our colleagues, Malik Edwards, Associate Dean and Professor of Law at NCCU School of Law. Dean Edwards teaches, among other courses, constitutional law and education law. And Don Corbett, one of our frequent guests and Professor of Law at NCCU School of Law. Professor, Corset, Professor Corbett teaches, among other courses, constitutional law and race in the law. Thank you both for joining us this evening. So before we get into the details of Brown, let's talk about the doctrine of separate but equal. So what is it and how was it manifested in society um, towards the end of the of this century? Uh, let's see, uh, Professor Edwards, let's start with you. Um, I think separate but equal was an acknowledgement of white supremacy. Um, and the court was fairly clear in Plessy by saying it was beyond the scope of the court's powers to undo social norms. And so they were going to allow separate but equal to prevail. Thank you for that. Um, Professor Corbett, did you have anything you wanted to add? Yeah, not too much. I, you know, immediately after the end of the Civil War, <clears throat> we know that uh, that started a period called Reconstruction uh, at a point where the United States government was dedicated to trying to weave you know, newly freed slaves into society. And one of the ways it tried to do that was through the passage of these three amendments, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. And the, the 14th Amendment, was the one that guaranteed equal protection of the law and, and due process of the law. So the Plessy uh, decision that Dean Edwards referenced was really the first challenge, not the first challenge, but one of the initial and certainly the most important challenge to this separate but equal doctrine 
And uh, the court essentially constitutionalized separate but equal, meaning that it was not required for blacks and whites to share the same space as long as they were treated equally by the law, uh, which is like inherently contradictory, but the court constitutionalized it. And that was the law for the next 50 or 60 years in the United States until the Brown decision. Mm-hmm. Now, Ding um, Edwards, you teach you know, and focus a lot of your scholarship on uh, education law and the NAACP was, you know, had a strategy in, you know, focusing on trying to overturn Plessy. Can you talk about the NAACP's approach to challenging separate but equal? And so Brown, of course, deals with um, K through 12 education, but, you know, it was difficult for the NAACP to kind of go directly to um, K through 12. What was the strategy that the NAACP employed and, and why did it have to be very thoughtful about how to approach dismantling separate but equal? Um, well, there's a couple things. One is this understanding of precedent that at least at that point, the court seemed to have some respect for. I'm not sure currently where the court is vis-a-vis the importance of precedent. And so they look to sort of chip away and to deal with the reality, as Professor Corbett said, that it was contradictory, right? Separate never was equal, but it was easier to lay out the disparities in higher education and particularly in legal education. So they said, we're going to approach this with something that the courts understand. So first you have to deal with the fact that there were a number of states where as a person of color, particularly as a black person, you could not get legal education. So the states in fact paid for you to go out of state to receive your education. And it might've been one of the biggest mistakes they ever made because if they hadn't done that, Thurgood Marshall would have ended up at University of Maryland for law school and not at Howard and would not have become indoctrinated and we might not have seen this, all the things that Marshall was able to do. And so they started with the Gaines case, so Missouri versus Gaines, where they first knocked down and said, well, you have to provide a law school within the state because there are certain benefits you get from being within the state. And so that was sort of the first step. I mean, the tragic part there is that the name plaintiff disappeared from the face of the earth and we still don't know what happened uh, to Lloyd Gaines, which I think is tragic. Then they moved forward and they challenged the system in Texas. And there you had a state flagship institution So in Sweat versus Painter, they said, look, this little rinky-dink law school that you set up at Prairie View clearly cannot be argued that it is equal to what's going on in the state flagship institution at University of Texas. So if the person is qualified, you have to admit them. And so that was the most part. And I think Sweat becomes important because they start the court actually mentions intangibles, that there are certain intangibles. So even if you have the same number of 
books. And even if you have the same amount of space, that there are intangibles that we have to look at and that you can't do that. And I think some of that is problematic, right? Because we deal with it today. Um, I think it's important to know that NCCU School of Law is the direct result of the Supreme Court's decision in the Gaines case. Um, the legislature said, fine, we'll pay for a school because we're not going to let Black folks go to UNC Chapel Hill. Sweat changed that, but we already had a structure in place. And I think, unfortunately, some folks still believe, right, that Central can never be the equal of UNC Chapel Hill. And one, I don't know what it means to be the equal, because I think we do and provide different things. Um, and so that provided a foundation, and then they could go and look at it in the area of primary and secondary education, which is what we get to in Brown. And the other piece that the Brown decision, one of the more important pieces that Brown brings forth is the use of this social science evidence. So I've written on footnote 11 in Brown, which I think fundamentally changed how we go about challenging things that we can use social science evidence. And they were able to establish, because they were still trying to get at Plessy. One of the things they said in Plessy is that there was no harm right, that any meaning that Black folks put on the separation was their own, wasn't the result of the state action. And so there was no actual harm. They were able to establish that there was, in fact, a harm, and therefore became action. Thank you for that. And um, Professor Corbett, so as Dean Edwards mentioned, the challenge in the educational space to segregation, the NAACP focused on the accommodations not being equal. Uh, then when the NAACP got to uh, K through 12, the focus was not necessarily on the equality of the accommodations, because in, in fact, in the um, Topeka, Kansas case, there was an argument that the educational accommodations actually were equal. Um, can you talk about, uh, and Dean Edwards kind of hit upon this, in terms of the, the argument that was being made in the pre, in the K through 12 cases, that were distinct from the arguments that were being made in higher education. Sure, sure. And, and I think it's also important to mention that while all the things that Dean Edwards spoke to having to do with the challenges that were made, they were, they were made at a higher education level, which didn't really impact a large number of people because at the time, there weren't tons of people going to college in the same way we think about it today. So when you start talking about going now to desegregate K through 12 schools, and that's really, really different, right? Because folk are absolutely not ready to desegregate schools. We have tradition of, of folks going to school in the neighborhoods they live in, and we know those, were, those, those neighborhoods were all segregated. So integrating K through 12 schools is incredibly personal because now you're talking about Black people literally being in your backyard. So, so it created, it was a really different dynamic, even though substantively the big picture constitutional argument uh, was basically the same. Now, where they went, I think a little bit differently was not so much the amorality of the situation, but the fact that the systems ended up creating psychological harm for the Black students. And as Dean Edwards referenced a minute ago, they, they leaned fairly heavily on sociological data 
to show how segregation impacted black children and made them feel inferior. And that the constitution just should not protect the system like that. So that was that was a little bit different from, from the higher ed arguments that were made, but it ended up being impactful for, for members on the bench. Mm-hmm. And one of the, in terms of demonstrating the, the harm, there's the, you know, the, um, Doll test, the doll right? Test, yeah. yeah. Can you yeah. can you talk a little sure. bit about what that was and, sure. and the impact that made on the court? Okay, I believe the the sociologist was a gentleman named Kenneth Clark, but I always screw that up. So apologies to the Clark family if I mess it up. But essentially, what they did was they took black children and they presented them with two different dolls: one white, one black. And then they read uh, certain characteristics to each uh, of the children saying, okay, which doll is the good doll? Which doll is the mean doll? Which doll is the smart doll? Which doll is the ugly doll? And, And in an alarming number of cases, the black children would point to the dolls that looked like them with regard to the questions that carry those negative connotations. So when you said, which doll was the pretty doll? inevitably both boys and girls of color would end up choosing the white doll. And, uh, and that it's stuff like that that I think was really, really impactful for the court. And interestingly, one of the things that we do in my class is I actually, there's, if you go to YouTube has everything, of course. And one of the things they have is, is modern day demonstrations of the doll test and, and to, for my students to actually see black kids in a much more current time, still making the same choices that those children made in the uh, in the 40s and 50s in the run-up to the Brown case is really, really jarring for them. But I think it brings the point home. And I think it was those kinds of things that really affected the court to ultimately end up holding what it held. Well, when you look at where the African-American communities were at that time, uh, the educational system was one in which there was great pride and uh, great accomplishments uh, that people were dealing with and uh, the, 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 the NAACP pursuit in the educational realm was not one that was well welcomed by uh, many uh, African-Americans, particularly those who taught in the uh, school system and were administrators in the uh, school system. I see that we, we're at our break time uh, right now and we're going to have to take it uh, at this point. But for our audience, uh, we are talking about uh, Brown versus Board of Education, its uh, history, its legacy, uh, impact, and continuing uh, issues that surround uh, the uh, implementation of the uh, Brown versus Board uh, mandate. We're talking with uh, Dean Malik Edwards and uh, Professor Don Corbett. Uh, both for uh, professors at the North Carolina Central University School of Law and uh, well-versed in uh, this area. We're going to continue this uh, discussion. We want you to stay with us, and we'll be right back. North Carolina Central University School of Law was founded in 1939 to provide opportunities for African-American students to become lawyers. Embracing our heritage, the mission of NCCU Law is to provide a quality, 
personalized, practice-oriented, and affordable education to historically underrepresented students from diverse backgrounds to increase diversity in the legal profession. We empower our graduates to become highly competent and socially responsible lawyers and leaders committed to public service and to meeting the needs of underserved communities. NCCU Law is excited to announce the creation of the NCCU Technology Law and Policy Center, made possible by the generous pledge of $5 million by Intel Corporation. The mission of the NCCU Technology Law and Policy Center is to produce technology-conscious lawyers who will use technology in alignment with the law school's mission to, one, facilitate the efficient, effective, and ethical practice of law, and two, increase the access of legal information and services to underserved communities. You can learn more about the Technology Law and Policy Center by visiting the NCCU Law website. Okay, we're back on the uh, Legal Legal Review. May 17th was the uh, date that the Brown versus Board of Education decision was announced by the United States Supreme Court over 68 years ago. And uh, this week we are talking about that historic case and its uh, impact on where we are right now in the process of desegregating the school system and desegregating uh, the uh, country in which we live. We know that there are many uh, problems, issues, dangers that exist out there, uh, but we're going to kind of focus in on Brown uh, right now and talk about some of those other ones uh, later. We're talking with uh, Dean Malik Edwards and Professor Don Corbett about uh, the uh, Brown versus uh, Board of Education uh, legacy. Uh, you were talking about the NAACP strategy for uh, addressing or attacking uh, segregation in America uh, and the uh, decision that they made to use the school system as an example of uh, the harm that was per being perpetrated by the, uh, the, the system of racial segregation uh, that existed uh, at, that, uh, at that time. Uh, can you kind of talk about the, uh, I guess, kind of dual feelings of African-Americans in that community during this time about uh, segregation in education and segregation generally and what was going on in other aspects and other parts of uh, uh, the communities uh, interaction. So, uh, uh, Dr. Corbin, you want to start us with that? One? Sure. I, I think there were, like, it's, it's, it's one of the things that I think we sometimes gloss over with regard to Brown. And I don't think anyone disputes that, that Brown the board was hugely impactful and hugely important, but it did have like immediate consequences for uh, black people beyond just the kids going to different schools. And one of those consequences was economic because many of uh, uh, education clearly was a path to upward to social mobility. And for black people working in education was a path to the middle class. 
And when I, it's interesting when I look at my parents' yearbooks from high school and college, especially in college, you see all the majors are listed by them and there's overwhelming numbers of education majors uh, because people were going into education and oftentimes going into these segregated schools to work with the, the black kids there. So while there was not the uh, same level of maybe textbooks or, you know, the aesthetic stuff that, that was present in white schools, there was an awful lot of caring in those institutions. So the fear from some people was twofold. One, we know that if the integration results come that, that Brown desires, that black teachers are not gonna be allowed to teach white students, that's not going to happen. So then what happens to those jobs? What happens to people's ability to move up economically? And uh, the second point would be, <clears throat> Uh, what happens to the tradition of the schools that we have had for so long? Uh, where is the intangible or perhaps tangible harm to losing those institutions? So, so it wasn't, I don't think, I think it's fair to say, and I'll defer to Dean Edwards about this because he knows more about it than I do, but it, it wasn't unanimously sought by Black educators that, that the things that Brown desired, was those were not things necessarily that everybody in the black community thought ultimately were good things. And unfortunately, we've seen that play itself out, not just in, not in the immediate aftermath of Brown, but you know, we can look back 50, 60 years later and still see some of the impacts uh, and some of the concerns that folk had about the integration of schools still playing out in our school systems today. And then, um, right, there's even a question around legal ethics of whether or not the NAACP actually did what their clients wanted or if they were moving their own political agenda forward. So Derek Bell has written on that subject. Um, and I agree with Professor Corbett, right? Brown is this important decision, but it is a flawed decision. Um, it builds on deficit-based narratives because the Clarks, both Kenneth and Mamie, talked about not just the harm to Black students, but to white students as well. And folks who were doing the studies today will tell you that, in fact, it wasn't the result of segregation. It was the result of these children having an understanding of white supremacy and of the normative piece. And that's not cured necessarily by integrated education. Um, and unless you deal with the larger sort of systemic pieces, you're not addressing the issues. And so it goes to how Dean Dawson framed the issue initially, right? That Brown has been limited only to state-sponsored segregation but the court fails to allow us to address larger systemic aspects of white supremacy. And schools operating in their own context can't do that. And now you have a system of schools that is still separate, even though the court would say, we don't have a dual system. It's as segregated in some places as it has ever been. But the, at least in the federal level, the court has foreclosed the options around school finance. And so you have a system 
that is clearly documented as separate but unequal. You've removed the people of color, so we can't sue to say we need to have reflections of us within the schools. And we have to own some of this. You have black folks, we often like to talk about white flight as a result of the Brown decision, but you also see black middle-class flight as well. Um, think about how this affects. Hillside High School is celebrating their 100th anniversary this week, which is important, right? Hillside is and always will be the black high school in Durham. But what does that mean? We also just saw the Board of Education change Hillside's new tech, which is one of the magnet programs they put in place to attract a more diverse population. Well, new tech is no longer Hillside new tech. It's now the Durham Technical High School. So why did they remove Hillside? Why did they remove the identifiable black part of it in an attempt to convince white folks that they want to go and avail themselves of these magnet programs? Well, I, I think that, you know, one of the, at least from my perspective, fallacy uh, is that in order to learn, you have to uh, sit next to someone of the opposite uh, race. I'm, I'm, I'm reminded, uh, April, that uh, a few weeks ago, we had a uh, program with uh, Bertha Tong, uh, who was a, uh, a teacher in the uh, Williston High School system and was one of those uh, teachers who uh, were, uh, who was uh, transferred over to the white school uh, after uh, Brown versus Board of Education and the North Carolina decision uh, to uh, eliminate uh, the uh, separate school system. And where she talked about uh, instances at Williston where African-American students who were tested on the Iowa Achievement Test, same test given to uh, white students, and uh, their scores came out significantly higher than were the scores of the uh, white students. And uh, the administrators became so alarmed at that that they uh, ordered that uh, the students be retested uh, at uh, Williston High School because there obviously was some fluke. And then when the uh, students were retested, they uh, tested better than they had uh, previously. Uh, and then they were tested again uh, because it was just un unimaginable that that could happen. But Williston was a school of excellence uh, during uh, those uh, segregation years, as was Hillside, uh, uh, was highly uh, uh, touted as one of the best schools in Dudley in Greensboro and uh, Ligon over in, uh, in Raleigh, producing outstanding uh, graduates. Uh, and we look now back in history to see uh, what those individuals were able to do in society. Do we now have comparable academic success in the school systems as it relates to African-American uh, children? that people were able to brag about uh, during the uh, pre-desegregation day. And uh, what is the cause of any decline in the quality of the education, which uh, Brown, versus uh, Brown, Brown versus Board of Education did not address? Professor Corbett, do you want to start? 
I was hoping you wouldn't call on me because that's a lot of. <laughs> <laughs> it is. I'm sorry. A, no, no, no. It's it's cool. It's just a, there's a lot of heavy stuff in there. I, I think I, I think there's a difference between having resources and having investment, right? So so what I think Brown saw was, or the one of the fundamental arguments was, well, the black schools are not resourced in the same way that these white schools are. So if we're going to truly have, you know, so, so as, as was clearly stated, as clearly stated earlier, separate is inherently unequal in this particular context. So you need to integrate the schools such that the students have the same level of resources that they would, and therefore would have an equal chance at attaining a quality education. But what I think can now be clearly stated, although you know there's pushback to it if, if people choose to do so, is that while maybe some of those kids eventually got access to the resources, it doesn't mean that those schools were as invested in them as students and as people and as invested in their success and as invested in their future. And, and I think that those are the things that I think created the lack of uh, what we would say, well, accomplishment would be too strong a word, but, but you, I think that's part of the reason why you don't see or didn't see as much in the way of success post-integration with some of our students as you might've seen pre-integration, because we know that we had black principals and black assistant principals and black teachers. And then we had black parents. And then if your parent wasn't around or somebody else's parent to yank you into shape. So, so there were these there were various layers of, of, um, of walls that would help you pull, help pull you forward, even if you didn't want to go forward. And then once you have this integration, you might have a few teachers like that that might be invested in you, but, but because many of those schools didn't really want to integrate in the first place, you know, there was just a shrugging of shoulders in terms of when students made it and didn't make it. And I think those are a couple of things, at least a couple of pretty generic reasons as to why that post-integration success may not have rivaled the pre-integration success you referenced. And I agree in a lot of ways, but I think we also want to be careful about sort of painting the segregated system as perfect. Um, I think you saw a lot of the same things you still had. So you had a group of highly successful black folks, but they still tended to be the more affluent. So the issues of class were still in play. Um, you had high dropout rates because folks had to go out and work or they had to go back to the farm. I think we've always had a history of abandoning poor children and that existed both in the segregated system and in a lot of ways, those middle-class black folks are still gonna be all right. When your parents have resources, you're okay. Because even when we get integrated schools, we know they resegregate within buildings. So I can speak to my experience of being in Durham public schools and we still had the dual system. So I went to a county school school that was probably 50% black and 50% white, but in my classes of 30 students, there were never more than three black folks. But those black folks came from the right family. <laughs> and I don't know that they necessarily had any issues with that. Um, but I also understand the power of institutions. 
because we all work at an under-resourced institution um, that is creating opportunities for students that wouldn't otherwise have opportunities. And that's what I think it is, that you can make up on some level the lack of resources just by pure will and loving. But I think we are also aware that at some point you run up against the lack of resources and there's only so much that you can do without adequate resources. And so you had some schools that were successful um, and were, a were able to overcome a lack of resources. I think it's interesting that the schools that you point out and some of the reasons you point those out, Professor Joyner, is because they're the five that still exist but one of the reasons they existed were because they were in urban areas and had an alumni base that had enough power to protect them in some way. I think that's why Hillside still exists. I think the reason we know at some point Durham High School, which had been the white school became a black school. So the reason it doesn't exist anymore is because it didn't have the history of the alumni and the white folks who went through there weren't gonna back it once became a black school, so now it's school of the arts. Um, so we have to address these larger issues. We've got to figure out how we put those same pieces in place, how we ensure that we have proper representation in teachers, how we train folks who may not look like us but want to be allies to actually be good allies and provide the same level of support, how we get the schools that serve under-resourced areas, more experienced teachers. Because we know when we look at those schools, they tend to have teachers with less experience. And it takes time to learn how to teach, right? But you have to do it. So putting having all first and second year teachers in a school places students from the very beginning at a disadvantage. And the question becomes, is there a litigation strategy to allow us to address it? I think as we think about Brown, we've got to see what's going to happen with Leandro because those cases intersect. And we've got to think about intersectionality. Where does the intersection of race and class come into how we sort of think and talk about it? Yeah, this is such an interesting discussion and it highlights you know, kind of the duality of Brown, right? And, and so it was absolutely necessary for Plessy to be um, overruled, right? That with, without a doubt, and, I, and everyone agrees that, that Brown accomplished that goal, but then the remedy of course became the issue, right? So you've got the striking of this, this principle um, but then how do you address the problem? And, and I think the first sign of that was the fact that you had two Brown decisions. You had Brown one in um, 1954, and then you didn't get the decree until a year later. And, and that's kind of um, a clear example of kind of dealing with a legal principle and dealing with how do you address the problem? And the problem was incredibly you know, huge and the court didn't do a very successful job in even providing right, the appropriate remedy. Um, Professor Corbett, can you talk about 
you know, Brown one and Brown two, what was the, dis- the distinction between the two and why was it that the court kind of issued its proclamation but didn't kind of order um, the decree until a year later? But actually, we are going to have to take a quick break. And so when we come back, we'll have you kind of um, uh, share with us your thoughts on that. You're listening to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. And we've been talking this hour about Brown v. Board of Education, which on May 17th hit its 68th anniversary. And we have with us here in our Zoom studio two of our wonderful colleagues, Dean Malik Edwards, who teaches, among other courses, constitutional law and education law, and professor and former dean, Don Corbett, who is one of our frequent guests, who also teaches constitutional law and teaches race and the law. We're gonna have to take a quick break. We hope you stay with us. We'll be right back. Hello, my name is Brittany Burks, and I am currently a 2L at the North Carolina Central University School of Law. And this is your Community Spotlight. The North Carolina Central University School of Law offers four certificate programs. Upon completion of the specified requirements, law students may earn a certificate in civil rights and constitutional law, dispute resolution, tax law, or justice in the practice of law. As a part of the Eagle Promise, NCCU School of Law offers our students four outcomes upon graduation. Completing a degree program on time, becoming socially and globally engaged, proving leadership, and graduating market ready. More information about any legal program is at 919-530-6610. My name is Brittany Burks with the Legal Eagle Review. Thank you for listening. And we're back. Thank you again for tuning in to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. I'm April Dawson and my co-host Irving Joyner and I have been talking this hour with two of our very learned colleagues here at NCCU School of Law. And we've been talking about Brown v. Board of Education. We have with us here in our Zoom studio, Dean Malik Edwards, who teaches constitutional law and education law, and Professor Don Corbett, who also teaches constitutional law and race in the law. And right before the break, we were talking about the Supreme Court issuing two decisions, so a Brown one decision that was decided in May 1954, and then a subsequent decision, Brown two, which was issued a year later. So Professor Corbett, can you explain why it is that the court Uh, decided to break up those two decisions and the impact of that? Sure, I can give it a shot. So so I think it's, you know, it's not pertinent to the discussion we're having right now, but I think it's also interesting, at least, for folk to know that uh, after the initial initial arguments for Brown took place in 1953, during that term of the Supreme Court, and the initial vote from the court was actually a five to four vote to uphold the separate but equal doctrine. 
The problem was that several of the justices did not want to see the separate but equal doctrine in education, okay? Uh, but they could only get four votes for that. So, so the members of the court at the time couldn't come to an agreement about the verbiage and the language they were going to use for the Brown decision. So usually, for folks that don't know, the court tries to end all of its business by the end of the term, which occurs in June, roughly. Uh, so they couldn't do it. So they decided to hear it again the following year in 1954. All right. So in between that time, the chief justice, a gentleman named Fred Vincent, died had a massive heart attack. And he was replaced by a gentleman named Earl Warren, who was the governor of California at the time. Uh, and the rumor was that President Eisenhower saw Warren as a threat to in the next presidential election because Warren was so popular in California. So he thought, mm, I'll fix this. I'll make him the chief justice of the Supreme Court. And what Warren did uh, was to, once they had uh, the rehearing, uh, Warren was able to cobble together a unanimous vote from the court, but it was a narrow one. And the narrowness was reflected in your in the way you phrased the question, which was, you know, why were there two separate decisions? All the court said was that we find separate but equal to be unconstitutional in the field of public education. And that was it. And, and Chief Justice Warren thought the unanimity was, was a, needed to be a unanimous decision because it wanted, they wanted to send a clear message to the South that you had to comply. And he thought that 5-4 or 6-3 would give too much leverage to people to continue to do what they wanted to do. But as you referenced, the court did not provide any guidance in terms of how to move the ball forward. Uh, so even though it was a kind of a watershed moment for race relations in the country, okay, it's like, now what do we do? So there's a second set of arguments that the court has the following year, and I believe it takes place in May of 1955, where the court issues an enforcement degree decree that's applicable to Brown, and this is what's known as Brown II. And the court basically says that the problems that we identified in Brown, they, they not, it doesn't yield itself to one solution across the country. So they essentially conferred responsibility on the local school boards and the courts, the district courts that originally heard these desegregation cases and said that those are the entities that are going to implement the principles which the court embraced in Brown. And, and the key language, which, you know, again, do what you want to do with it, was Chief Justice Warren says that you're going to do this and move toward compliance with Brown with quote unquote, all deliberate speed. Now, what does that mean? You know, well, what it meant was people were like, oh, okay, we'll get there when we get there. So you had uh, cities and counties that, that were very, very slow uh, to move on Brown. And, you know, in the immediate aftermath, there were congressmen calling for the impeachment of the Supreme Court. There were uh, the rise of private schools throughout the, uh, throughout the South began popping up, many of which are still in existence today because for people who don't know, private schools are not answerable to the Constitution in any way. There were some school districts that actually abolished public schools for a few minutes so they wouldn't have to integrate. And so you didn't have this all deliberate speed took on a life of its own. And it really wasn't until Congress passed laws that were uh, that said that if your system actively discriminated on the basis of race, then you forfeit your eligibility for federal funds. And those schools understood green uh, and decided that, well, we can live with some black if we get more green. So it wasn't really until I think between 65 and 75 when you started to see this integration of, of schools in the South uh, at a much more uh, intentional pace. 
So that's kind of the long and the short of it in terms of why we had two separate decisions. The first decision was really about just to pronounce that the uh, this current system in public education was unconstitutional. And the second one purported to provide a roadmap for, for schools and cities in terms of how to actually go about implementing this. But it was clearly super problematic. Yeah, one of the things I always talk to my students about when we cover Brown is, you know, making sure they understand the uniqueness of that, where the where the Supreme Court has said this conduct is unconstitutional, but no one has to abide by it because the court doesn't enter a decree, right? And so a, a year goes by. Um, and this is, you know, the only case that I can recall where the court has done that. I mean, so you can imagine if when the court said that same-sex marriage is protected by the Constitution, but states you don't have to worry about following the Constitution for a year, right? We'll, we'll let you deal with it later. That, that doesn't make any sense. Um, yeah. And it actually, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I, I think it, it actually shows, like, the distinctions I don't want to get too deep in the weeds, but the distinction we have between having what people would term a progressive court versus a conservative court, because it's really easy to strike stuff down, right? It's easy to, to stop stuff before it becomes a thing. But then if you're, if you're trying to expand the scope of rights to people, then sometimes the mechanism for doing that is, <clears throat> is way more layered and way more complicated. And, and it, so even if you want to institute societal change in whatever the field is, courts sometimes just aren't the mechanism for doing that. And that's what makes all this change really complicated. You know, one of the things that we, we see is that during that Brown period, there was a uh, supportive mechanism in place, an attitude in place uh, for public schools and promoting of uh, public schools and that uh, they should, uh, within their own sphere, be able to do all of the things that uh, public schools can do. 68 years later, we see now an effort to undermine the concept of public schools, moving toward now the private school and further separation of the uh, races uh, result uh, from this uh, enterprise such that African-American and people of color find themselves in public schools and whites find themselves in private schools. And then you see at the state level efforts to uh, rechannel tax dollars from the public school system into the private school uh, system. So can you kind of talk about, you know, whether Brown is really a successful history or there's success at the end of the day, or does it further allow an opportunity for those people who have racial uh, animosity to uh, find another way to discriminate against uh, African-Americans and people of color? I think there's two questions, right? I think the court has said that individuals have the right to discriminate, right? And my students, when I teach con law, always look at me like I'm crazy when I say that you have a First Amendment right to hate. Right, that that is protected. Um, but I think the courts have taken too limited a view of what is state action. And you laid out, right, 
they're talking about providing vouchers, which would undermine. And I think court's current jurisprudence would say that if we provide vouchers, there's individual choice, which doesn't implicate the 14th Amendment, even if the result is a segregated school system, unless the system is currently under court supervision. So there's a difference between a dual system and a unitary system. And I don't want to go sort of too much into the weeds for folks who are listening, but a school system that is deemed to be state-sponsored segregation is deemed to be a dual system, a true operating tool system. Once a court decides that they've done enough to address it, and that doesn't mean you ever actually reach integrated schools, then it is declared a uniform, unified system. And at that point, you can't do anything. And because of other cases like Washington v. Davis, the assumption is unless they explicitly say they're doing it for racial reasons, that it isn't reachable through. And it's, I love our constitution. I think it's great, but it is a limited document. Part of the reason they had to kick it back to the states is their separation of powers concerns. It's the same thing that happened in Leandro, right? The court can make the decision, but it's remedial power, depending on how you read separation of powers, is limited. So you have to give the legislature a chance to fix it. Or in this instance, you have to give states a chance to fix it. So it's interesting that Professor Corbett talked about green because, right, it, green is important because we use it for money. But the court, until they got to the green decision, that's where they sort of more clearly defined the factors are that we're going to look at to determine whether or not a school is or is not, in fact, integrated. And he's right. They didn't really start addressing this in a lot of places until the 70s. Um, when I went to school in Durham, it was still a dual system, right? And I, some students look at me because I still talk about the city and county system, even though there's been a dual <clears throat> system in Durham and since 94, but there are still districts in the state of North Carolina that are still under court <laughs> supervision that have not been found to be unitary, which is amazing to me because the court has made it so easy to reach unitary status at this point. Because basically they say, all you have to do is make a good faith effort and blame it on larger societal um, impacts. And as long as the court sort of says that, then no, Brown cannot be a successful decision. And the whole purpose of Brown has to be overturning Plessy, which I guess is good in itself, but it's a limited reading of the 14th Amendment. We have to remember that the 14th Amendment was the direct result of earlier court decisions, right? Principally Dred Scott. Dred Scott said that we as people, as black folks, were not citizens and were not contemplated by the founders, which is why I can never be an originalist, because the court concedes that fact. Mm -hmm. The purpose of the 14th Amendment was to provide full citizenship to blacks. And since we still have not achieved full citizenship, there has to be power within the control of the court to take steps to give us full citizenship. And we can't get that without 
education because we can't participate fully in the body politic. Thank you for that. Um, and, and it's interesting when you mentioned, um, you know, originalism, there are arguments, I think very strong arguments that, um, you know, if you're a purely originalist, it's hard to reconcile Brown, right? Even with the 14th Amendment. And so when the 14th Amendment was ratified, you know, the question is at that time, was it anticipated that um, there would be, you know, integration or would segregation be permitted under the 14th Amendment at the time that it was ratified? And I think history would tell you yes, right? And so, and that kind of brings out the distinction between those that interpret the constitution uh, or who purport to interpret the constitution based on the original understanding of the founders or does the constitution evolve and grow as a living document that reflects the values of current society? Um, and so we, we only have a few minutes left. And, um, you know, Dean Edward, this kind of goes to your, you mentioned early on that the state of public education in the nation is still largely segregated. And, and so we've talked about Brown having overturned a vile principle, right? And so from a legal constitutional perspective, it, it served its purpose or it, it accomplished its goal rather, but in terms of, um, facilitating change in our public educational system, it has not. It, it's not, it shows the limitations of the law of the Supreme Court and the constitution. So we'd like to get from each of you, just kind of your thoughts on, you know, what the future may hold when it comes to segregation in uh, public education in, in the country. What are your thoughts? Um, Dean Edwards, let's start with you. I always wanna be more hopeful, um, but until the court recognizes education as a fundamental right so that we can in fact do, get that heightened level of scrutiny, because it's too easy to hide as to who the actors actually are. And as long as more affluent folks can opt out of the system, and so I think of two cases that don't sort of speak to race at all, problematizing Brown. One was decided before Brown, which is Pierce versus Society of Sisters, where they said the state couldn't require everybody to go to public school. And then San Antonio versus Rodriguez, when the court states that education is not a fundamental right and that poverty is not a suspect classification, basically foreclosed what was going forward. Because San Antonio versus Rodriguez got built on in Millican, because there they were trying to do a larger metropolitan remedy, because there's not enough folks unless you can reach out into the suburbs, right? And that was how they were going to do it. And the court said, no, can't force these suburban folks to do it. But education, although it's been given to localities, is required in state constitutions so the burden should fall on the state at large. And I think that's if I was reframing how to approach it from a litigation perspective, that would be it, is that they are not meeting their own standard. And it doesn't matter if you pass the power, you still ultimately are responsible for the outcomes. And therefore you should be able to have remedies that look at it because there are ways to do integration if we ignore these lines, especially since the lines in a number of districts were created in a direct response to Brown. So 
North Carolina didn't have all these school districts prior to Brown. They created all these districts so that we, so the NAACP would have to litigate multiple cases. And we know that we can establish that, which seems to establish state action. But I'm not sure what the remedy looks like if but still we're going to allow folks just to opt out of the system. Mm -hmm. Professor Corbett? Yeah, I, I can't really I can't really add a whole lot to what's been said. I I wholeheartedly agree that I think Brown is at minimum complicated, you know, in terms of what its big picture legacy means, certainly with regard to the area of public education. But but I think for me, I'm I would go a different tack and say that. I think that Brown represents one of the first times that the national government says in a full-throated way that Black people are entitled to constitutional protections. And I think that that's critical. I think it, it let people know that the status quo was no longer going to be acceptable. So I think in looking at it in that perspective, you have to ask yourself, you know, would the Civil Rights Act of 1964 have been possible without Brown? Would the Voting Rights Act of 65, the Elementary School, the Elementary School Education Act of 65, would these things have been possible without Brown? And maybe they would have, uh, but you know, maybe not. And and for me, I think, you know, I can I can easily make an argument that there's there's no Barack Obama, there's no Katanji Brown Jackson without the decision of Brown itself. So I think, you know, it, it wasn't perfect litigation because litigation doesn't yield perfect results, but in terms of moving the ball forward where we as a society needed to go as black people, I think Brown is incredibly important. All right, well, we're gonna end it there because we are out of time. But we'd like to thank our guests, Malik Edwards, Associate Dean and Professor of Law at NCCU School of Law, and Don Corbett, Professor of Law at NCCU School of Law. We can't thank you both enough for uh, spending your time with us and, and sharing your wisdom on this very important yet complicated case. We, of course, would like to thank you, our listening audience, for spending your Sunday evening with us. We hope you've enjoyed the show. If you have any questions or comments, please send us an email. You can reach us at legaleaglereview at nccu.edu. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Until next week, stay informed, engaged, healthy, and safe.